Do you remember your very first job? The very first time you were actually paid for labors that you completed. For me, that was the spring of 1985, which incidentally was the same time that some kids from Hawkins, Indiana were trying to save their town from the upside down and stranger things. But I digress. My very first job was at 16 years old, spring of 85, at a place called the Red Food Store. I'm not making that up. I was a bag boy. And you might say, well, Pastor Paul, I don't, I've never heard of the Red Food Store. How, how did it stack up to, like, say, Publix? And you'll be happy to know that the Red Food Store was inferior in every imaginable way to Publix, all right? Now, they did let us do tips. That, that was good, which was compensation for allowing us to work in slum-like conditions. But now, I found that there were two challenges to working my first job, and one was just learning the actual job that I was hired to do, to be a bag boy, how to bag groceries, how to put them in a cart, how to carry them to somebody's car, how to load and unload them, how not to put the soap with the cantaloupe. I did do that one time, right? But what was just as important, though, is learning my job, because I found that part relatively straightforward and simple. I found the harder part was learning the rules of the company as a whole. You know, the guidelines that govern the whole store, how to clock in and out, intersecting with other employees, being on time, submitting to the boss. Let's call these the rules of engagement. Now, my experience a lot of times in jobs is that most problems on the job are not related to someone's ability to do or not do their job description, although that can happen. But more oftentimes, it's their inability to embrace the values and the culture of the company, their failure to live by the house rules. And that's kind of the way Romans 12 is set up. Remember, last week we were talking about spiritual gifts. And Paul, using Romans 12, 1 and 2 as a springboard, that we're to live um, and to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And the first thing Paul talks about is our spiritual gifts. He says, as your spiritual act of worship, use your gifts. You've all been given one if you're a Christian to serve and to build up the body of Christ. And this is, in effect, Four Oaks, your job description. This is the thing that you are called specifically to do with the church family. This is your specific mission, should you choose to accept it. That's your spiritual gift. That's your job description. And by the way, thanks to all of you who went online, completed that skill mapping survey. Over a couple hundred of you have already done that. There's still time to do that. It's in the email that we sent out. This just gives us a, a a chance to capture a picture of Four Oaks, who you are, your gifts, your abilities, your background. But that was our job description. This morning, though, we want to move from talking about job description to talking about the house rules, the things that are true for everyone, the things that apply to everyone in the church, the sort of the rules of engagement for how we are to all use our gifts together, for how we are all to serve and be in community with one another. And I would venture to say that most problems in the church don't occur because of verses 3 through 8, which we talked about last week with spiritual gifts. Now, sometimes they do. 
Sometimes there can be an abuse of gifts or a misuse of gifts or a neglect of gifts. But I would venture to say that most problems in the church come about because we don't heed verses 9 through 21, which is going to be our text this morning, about how we are to engage, treat, love, and serve one another in the body of Christ. So this morning we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read this passage together. There's a lot in this text. So buckle up, here we go. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we are your people. And I believe I, I preach and pray and speak on behalf of a people who want to, to honor you, to please you, to walk with you. Lord, we want to build up the body of Christ, your body. We want to serve faithfully. We want to be good stewards. And Lord, when we read a passage like this from Romans 12, it can be overwhelming. It can be, there can be such a sense, right, Father, that, that we are not this. We can't do this. And Lord, that's right. We confess that, which is why we need your help, which is why we need the activation of your Holy Spirit to bring life to us as believers and as your church family. So, Father, we ask now for your help. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We take your seats. Let's, let's be honest. Let's just get the, the elephant out of the room here real quickly. It kind of feels like Paul hooked up the Holy Spirit fire hose and is letting us have it, right? I mean, even as I'm reading, I'm, I'm watching a few shoulders just slump slightly inward, right? It's like Paul is blasting us with this series of imperatives, of commands. It's like this scattering of shotgun pellets of, of random commands and directives. And so I thought about entitling this sermon, 25 Rules for the Church Family, but that didn't really seem to ring, right, or resonate. But actually, on closer inspection, I think there's a lot more to it than that. See, I think what Paul is essentially doing is that he is painting 
a family portrait. I love to go over to some of your houses and see your family portraits, to see the progression, okay, of, of ages of your kids, your family, or the paintings or the portraits. And you can tell a lot by getting a snapshot of a family. And I think in a lot of ways, this is what Paul's doing in Romans 12. He's giving us a portrait of the family of God, of not only who the family of God is, but what the family of God should aspire to be. And in a lot of ways, you could look at each of these little commands as sort of a, a brush stroke, a, a splotch of paint on the canvas of the family of God that Paul is painting. Now, if you've been here around here long enough, you know that each of these little descriptors in and of themselves could be a whole sermon, right? And you can be thankful today that that won't be the case. We could, we could spend three years in Romans 12, right? Make Martin Lloyd-Jones look like a topical preacher, right, by doing that. So we're going to look, I think, we're going to really drill down into one aspect of this text. And the reason we're going to drill down in this one aspect of the text is that I think it sort of sets the priority and the trajectory for all the other things that Paul is going to say. Paul is going to talk about to us what our number one priority should be as the family of God. The, the one thing, not the only thing, but the one thing above all as it relates to being a church family, this is the one thing Paul says, I want to commit yourself to. And as Paul does that, as he talks about this number one priority, there's going to be a portrait that emerges, something that God will do in and through us as we commit ourselves to that. So, so those are, here are our two points today. We're going to first of all talk about the family priority, and number two, the family portrait. So there we go, family priority, family portrait. Let's, we're going to really camp out on this family priority thing, though, for most of our time. Let's look at verse 9. What is the first thing that Paul is going to say? What's the first rule of engagement to being a part of the family of God? Verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. Now, Paul starts with this command, this imperative, this priority for a reason. Everything is going to cascade down from this one particular verse. Verse 9 is the headliner. Paul's saying that if you had to choose one word over our interactions as a church family, the thing that's to govern us above all, it is to love one another. This is the family priority. Now, it should not surprise us, Paul begins here. It's what he says in many other places. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, which is not a passage about marital love. It's a, part, it's a passage about love in the body of Christ and using spiritual gifts. And it's a very familiar passage. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gained nothing. Here's, here's, here's the 
the significance of what Paul's saying here. He's saying that every one of us can be doing our job description, quote unquote, in the local church. We can be using our gifts, we can be serving, we can be achieving maximum efficiency and skill and efficacy and be really good from a skill standpoint at what we're doing, but without love, without the fruits of the Spirit, we will function less like a community and more like a company. We will function less like brothers and sisters and more like strangers or, or, or maybe acquaintances if we're lucky, right? And this, of course, raises the very obvious issue. Well, that, that's all fine, Pastor Paul, that, but that sounds like real spiritual speak. Just love each other and everything's going to be great. What is love? Now, Paul here doesn't just mention love in the abstract. The kind of love that Paul talks about here is a genuine love. Love is genuine, means it's not fake. It's authentic. It's real. This is a kind of love that is not some sort of sentimental tripe. It's not about wearing a facade or maintaining a polite distance or just keeping the peace, which is not the same thing as love, by the way. What Paul is talking about is a love that has real traction in people's lives. This is a sturdy love. This is a rugged love. This is a deep, rich, authentic, biblical love. And Paul gives us a definition. So look back at verse 9. How would you define love? It's a good question, right? There's two aspects to love that Paul mentions here. He says, first of all, abhor what is evil, number one. And then number two, on the other end of the spectrum, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now that word abhor, it means to hate. It means to set your heart and face against something. What is it that you hate in your life? Now, we can start with the trivial for a moment. And what particular food do you absolutely hate? For me, that is not a difficult choice. That is the, 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 the dreaded condiment otherwise known as mayonnaise, right? I would rather have nuclear hot wing sauce from Island Wings squirted in my eyes than to eat mayonnaise. And I know this is an invitation for you to send me jars of mayonnaise and mix up mayonnaise right, right in, the, in the bread you give me at Christmas time and all that, okay? May a plague be upon your soul if you ever do such a thing, right? When I say I hate mayonnaise, I, I, it's not exactly the same thing, right? I mean, this is an aesthetic abhorrence, right? Mayonnaise is not really going to hurt me, right? Um, it's, it's, just a, it's just a strong preference. That's not, that's not the kind of thing Paul is mentioning here. The kind, of, the kind of abhorring that Paul mentions here is a deathly abhorring. And, and if you want to know what I abhor in a, in a deathly sort of way, it is shellfish, and I'll tell you why. I grew up eating shrimp and lobster and all the stuff growing up. That, this was our family's favorite thing to do when we would go out to eat. It was always about seafood. But in my mid-20s, 
I began to realize that every time I had a little seafood, I'd had just a tiny bit of a reaction. Do you know what I mean? Just like a little, little itchy here, a little scratchy there, a little cough here. And my wife, being the beautiful, astute, wise woman she said, uh, woman that she is, said, you know, I, I think you might have an, an, uh, an allergy to shellfish, to which I said, no, 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 no. It's some spice, right? Or it's some iodine or something that I'd read somewhere on the internet. But, and, and I was just kind of in denial. Well, that all changed, and I still remember the spring of 2003, we were at a college retreat, and we had posies come in and cater that retreat. And you know posies, they come in and they, by the, by the truckload, they will dump fried shrimp on top of this huge platform, this box, and you just come in, it's like tie your hands behind your back and put your face in and eat as much as you can, okay? That was me, my posture that night. Well, I remember while the speaker was speaking about two hours later, I began to feel literally my whole body like, like be consumed in fire, right? But in my inside, my esophagus was burning. I started to vomit. I swelled up. I was like um, Will Smith and Hitch. Have you seen this? You know, when he has the allergic reaction to the food and his ears get this big. And I am vomiting. I am sick. I'm breaking out in hives, and we were out in the middle of nowhere at St. Teresa, and Susan and I both thought, I am about to die. I'm about to die in the passenger seat of my minivan, okay? There's a lot of places I'd rather die than the passenger seat of the minivan. Well, let me tell you, obviously, you know the end of the story. We're, we're here. We're, we, we made it okay. But ever since that time, I haven't just had an aversion to shellfish. I've had a deathly aversion. I have done everything possible to keep myself completely free of all contaminants shellfish related. See, th th there was no polite distance. I didn't just abhor it aesthetically, but it was something that, and here's, here's, the, here's the dynamic, I still loved it, right? But I knew that it would kill me literally. Guys, that's the nature of sin, isn't it? Every one of us has some sort of shellfish spiritual equivalent in our life. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He says, let me define love for you, Four Oaks. Love demonstrated both for yourself and for other people means treating your temptations like this version of shell, a shellfish, you have to get a mean streak. You can't be passive. You, you have to get violent with your sin. You, you just floating along in neutral can be the most unloving thing that you ever do, not just for your soul, but for people you love, for your children, for your spouse, for the people in your community group, for the relationships that you have. Paul says, let, let, let me tell you what love first is. It's an abhorrence of evil. Now, I hesitated about whether to, to share this next Bible passage, but because it's in the Bible, I thought I was on safe territory. So turn to, November, uh, to Numbers chapter 25, okay? I've, November, I've got fall on the mind. Numbers 25. Now, there's a reason I was hesitant about sharing this passage, and I think that will become obvious as I, as I share it. 
but I felt so compelled. I came across this passage in my own just personal quiet time, and it so aptly describes what I think Paul is talking about here in terms of our posture and stance against sin, against unrighteousness, those things that will destroy our soul. I just felt like this was something we needed to to consider together. So Numbers 25, let me begin the passage and we'll have it on the screen here. While Israel lived in Shedem, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Verse 6, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So here's the context. The people of Israel are almost to the promised land. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And God says, right outside the promised land, prepare yourself. Worship me, prepare your hearts, be set apart, be holy as I am holy. And whatever else you do, don't intermingle, don't intermarry with the pagan tribes that surround you, that are going to be all around you as you make your way into the promised land. So what happens is that Israel gets to Moab right outside the Holy Land, and they set up camp, and Numbers 25 tells us that the Israelites began to intermingle, and the word it uses is a very strong word, they were whoring with the daughters of Moab. But understand, this was not merely a sexual transgression, it was also a religious one. You see, their sexual transgression diverted their hearts and minds from God, the true God, Yahweh, to the idols and the gods of the pagan neighbors, and it drew their hearts away from God. And then Moses tells this story of an Israelite who brought a Midian woman into camp. Now, understand, when he says he brought her into camp, he wasn't there to introduce her over ye rose, okay, that night, right? That he wasn't there to introduce her to his family um, for dinner, like this is someone special. It's, it literally means he, he brought her into the compound to shack up. That's, that's what it's saying. And this was a brazen act of defiance. You see, the people were all weeping over their sin, but in the middle of this comes this man who is not flaunting it. I mean, who is flaunting it in every way. He's not, he's not bashful. He's not ashamed. He's not abhorring evil and sin. Quite the opposite. He's celebrating it, right? And we can understand that from the culture we live in. He's cultivating it. He's feeding on it. He's glorifying it. He's celebrating it for all to see. He's calling unrighteousness righteousness. Then it says that Phineas, who is Aaron's grandson, 
sort of follows them to their tent. Now, do you want the G-rated version or the R-rated version? I'll, I'll give you the PG-rated version, okay? It says that they were together. Enough said? Everybody understand what we're talking about here? And it says that he came in and thrust his spear and killed both of them through the stomach at the same time. It was a two-for-one shot, right? Now, I would just love to be a fly on the wall in your community group tonight to hear how y'all are going to talk about that. But y'all have fun with this one, okay? You get the picture, right? Now, let me say this. If this offends you, either one of two things is true. First, maybe you have vastly underestimated the holiness of God. The righteousness of God, the purity of God, the light of God. And for you, this doesn't seem like that big a deal. If you have an itty-bitty view of the holiness of God, you will have an itty-bitty view of sin. Secondly, maybe you've underestimated your own wickedness, your personal wickedness, your own sin, your own heart apart from Christ. Probably, probably both. We probably all suffer culturally with a little bit of both of those errors of thinking. But here's the important thing. Regardless of what you and I think about this, the most important thing is what does God think about it? This does not offend God. In fact, listen to what God says about this. And as I say this, please understand that Jesus looked back on the whole Old Testament and says that I came to fulfill every jot and tittle. This is all about me. This is, this, is, this is not words for an ancient pagan culture. These are words for the here and now given to us. It's a, this, this passage, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. What does God say? Number 25. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And, I sh and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This is an example of what of the Apostle Paul would say is love. See, this sin was killing them. This sin was literally killing the people of God. And it says, as soon as Phineas came in as the mediator and put his foot down and said, here and no further. What does it say? The wrath of God relented. There, 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 was, there was peace among the people because sin had finally been dealt with. God commends Phineas, please hear this, for sharing God's passion for his glory, his holiness, his righteousness, it was then the most loving thing that he can do. Guys, what is it that you abhor in your life? What are the things that you know are just death 
to your soul. And that to get anywhere near them, to sniff them. And, and I don't mean like going right up to the line and seeing how close you can get, but the things which are literally soul-destroying in your life. Paul says, when we abhor that sin in our lives, and when we help others abhor the sin in their lives, God calls that love. So please understand, guys, where, where, where our righteous anger should be pointed. Please understand who gets the, the pointed end of the sword. It's not the people out there. Paul says, look, don't judge the world. The world has got plenty of problems. I got the world. He said, you just take care of your own hearts. Listen to what he says in verse 17, back to Romans 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The reason, please hear this, that God does not call us as New Testament people to what Phineas does any longer. He does not call us to that. He does not call us to holy war. He does not call us to physical violence. Why? Because Jesus suffered all the violence in our place. You see, the, this couple had the sword put through both of them, but Jesus, do you realize, was pierced for you with the sword. Jesus was pierced for me. Jesus received all the violence from men as a sacrifice for our sins so that we no longer live under the curse of the law and we are no longer responsible for enacting justice on a physical level. What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. So as Christians, we put down arms and understand what Paul says, that our fight is a spiritual fight. And the most important thing is not to engage in holy jihad out there. It's to bring our hearts before the Lord and to say, God, I want to hate what you hate. I want to abhor what you abhor. And I want to help my brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same. So we, we don't direct our violence against people out there. No, no, that, that's part of the old covenant reality. But because of Jesus, because God has them now, but because of Jesus, we turn our attention to our own hearts in the family of God. And this is what Paul says. He says, that is called love. See, part of what it means to love each other in the local church is that we want to help one another abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. And the ultimate thing that we bring ourselves to cling to, of course, is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. That's our mission. That's why this is the governing principle. This is the family priority that God has given us as his people. And please understand something. You have to know this. The world does not define love in this way, right? Love means affirmation, encouragement, empowerment, approval, and applause for whatever it is that you want to do, for whoever you want to be, for however you want to live your life. This is going to be often kind of be called judgmental. 
and harsh and critical. And understand, this kind of love can be done in a harsh, critical, judgmental way. Oftentimes, this will be when we seek to come alongside our brothers and sisters to help them in this, that will be called not loving or harsh. Guys, I can't tell you how many people over the years have shipwrecked their faith on the, har- on the rocks of the accusation that the church and, the other, and other believers are unloving because they've engaged them in this way. Guys, this is the most loving thing that we can do for one another as believers. So here's a question before we leave this point. Is there anyone in this church who is loving you? Is there anyone in this church who loves you enough and knows you enough to be able to come alongside of you and say, brother, how can I help you fight against the sin in your life? I don't do it from a place of of judgment. I don't do it from a place of being superior. I I do it from the place of being a fellow sinner and struggler in Christ. Is there anybody in your life, in your community group, in your marriage, in your home, in your friendships, who loves you in this way? Conversely, let me ask you this. Is there anyone whom you are loving in this way in your life. See, it would be possible to say, well, that's right, Pastor Paul, nobody loves me, nobody asks me, nobody cares about me, nobody takes an interest in me. And what we have here in Romans 12 is this picture of a reciprocal late relationship where we are abhorring evil together. We're clinging to what is true together. And you know what the Bible calls this? It calls it love, it calls it friendship. This is what it means to be the family of God. This is to be our number one family priority. Everything else that Paul says in this text cascades, flows down from this one particular thing. And Paul says when we commit ourselves to doing this as our foundational priority, God begins to paint this beautiful portrait and conform us to this beautiful portrait known as the family of God. And that's going to be our second point. Now, when you read these verses, and guys, we're going to go through these quickly. But what Paul is doing here is that he wants to show us a spiritual community, what a spiritual community looks like for those who have taken their marching orders from Romans 12, verse 9. This is what happens, Paul says. This is what God is doing in your midst as you commit yourself wholly to this task, as you, as you sort of go all in. And we know all in, is, is, it's a gambling term. It, it, it denotes this idea that I'm going to leverage all the chips I have, all the money I have, because I am so confident in the hand that I have, I know that I can win. And this is what Paul is saying. If you want to put all of your spiritual chips in somewhere, do it here in the family of God because God said, these are my people. Church, do you realize this? That you are God's people. He loves you. He has given us the gift of community with one another. And I just want to list out six quick things 
that God does when the family of God loves each other. Six things that God gives us. And guys, let this be aspirational. Let this be a point of examination and application to say, is, is this true for me? And if it's not, why not? And how can I make it so? Number one, when the family of God loves each other, God gives us a family affection. Look at verse 10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. One of the things that you know in healthy families over the course of time, the family develops its own sort of inside jokes. You know what I'm saying? It's things that they say to one another that only the family gets. And if you're a teenager, if this is the things that your friends find out about, they, you would be horrified, right? And that's why everybody in the family has this pact of mutually assured destruction. I won't share about yours if you don't share about mine. Well, when we added a family member almost three years ago, our brother-in-law, Brandon, who's married to our oldest daughter, Grace. And when he came in to our family, he thought, and rightly so, this is a strange lot, right? This is a strange group. They say things no one understands. They have this running jokes and insider lingo, and he was just sort of befuddled and perplexed. Well, guys, I would love to show you my texting thread, but which I won't because I would be severely punished. But, but, but here it is, two years later, Brandon is fully into the swing of our family, right? He gets the jokes. He knows what we're saying. He knows it before I say it. Guys, this is what it means to develop a family affection for one another that we can truly, here it is, be ourselves. Because you have a, do you have people in the family of God where you are just who you are, and they are just who they are, warts and all, and, you, and you're, you're abhorring evil together, you're clinging to what is good together, and you have a family affection together. Number two, when the family of God loves each other, there's also a family expectancy. Okay, go back to the text. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. See, when you haven't seen someone in your family in a long time, and I'm talking about the people in your extended family that you like, I mean, those, those people, right? There's an expectancy. There's a sense of like, man, it's been so long since I've seen them. I want to catch up. I want to know what's happened. I want to, I want to, I want to reach out. I want, to, I want to engage. Guys, do you have a sense of expectancy with people in this church? Guys, pray, because if you don't, pray, for example, as you are getting ready to come over here on a Sunday morning, or, or, or you're getting dressed, you're driving over, maybe you're preparing the night before to say, God, what do you have for me here today? As you're preparing to go to your community group, God, what do you have for me here today? Who, who, who do you want me to serve? Who, who, how do you want me to invest? What, God, give me an expectancy, a fervency, a zeal for being with your people. Guys, do you have a family affection? Do you have a family expectancy? But another thing that God does, a third thing in the family of God, when we love, is that he, we develop a family resiliency. We look back at the text. Paul says, rejoice in hope, 
Be patient in tribulation. Rejoice with those who, who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Guys, when I say resilient, what I mean is a family celebrates birth and death together. The family is together throughout the course of its life cycle. And there, when that happens, when that history is created, and there is such a resiliency that develops, it unites and knits people together in a meaningful way, an incredible way, a supernatural way. Guys, we have a church full of resilient saints. We have people here today, this morning, who have lost spouses. We have people here today who have lost children. But yet, there's a resilience that says the, the, the comfort that I received in my moment of crisis and time of suffering, I'm going to use to pour out to other people in their time of need of crisis and suffering. This is 2 Corinthians 1. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, comfort the saints with the comforts you have received. Because there's a, there's a family resiliency with the people of God. There's a fourth thing, and I'm just going to briefly mention this because we talked a lot about it this week. When, when the people of God love, there is a family generosity. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's a reminder that the call for generosity is far more than financial, although it's not less than that. But a family shares itself. It shares its gifts. It shares its time. It shares its resources. It shares its relational capital. Because are, are you, is there a generosity, a posture of generosity that you have with the family of God? Fifth thing, because when the people of God love, there is a family inclusion. This is a big one. Look at verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Guys, it's possible to be a part of a family of God like this, but not associate with the lowly who are part of the family of God. What do I mean by that? Paul's not talking here, by the way, about people outside the church family. Absolutely associate with them and need and service. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about how do you relate and love people in the church who can't do anything for you? They can't do anything for you financially. They can't do anything for you vocationally. They can't do anything for your job, for your status in the community, for your acceptance into this circle or that circle. But there is a call for us as fellow believers to associate with everyone. And the true test of that is, do you do things for and with people who could otherwise not do anything for you in an earthly context? And guys, the reason that we do this is that it's a picture of the gospel. You see, we are all the lowly. We are all the needy. We are all the suffering. We are all part of a group of people who desperately need the grace of God in our lives. And so when we love each other, there is a family conclusion. Last one, and we'll be done. 
When the people of God commit themselves to the priority of God, there is a family optimism. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 17. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When we say that God gives us a family optimism, what, what, what he means here is that we think the best of one another. We don't assume the worst. We don't return evil for evil or what we perceive as evil. We keep short accounts. Guys, part of having a family optimism is not taking ourselves so seriously. Because you can do everything that you can, Paul says, everything you can to be at peace with all men. But you know what? At the end of the day, you don't have control over that. But what you can do, this is Paul's admonition, is don't take matters into your own hands, inflicting evil to evil and vengeance and wrath. Entrust that to God. God will take care of it. God's in control. Trust in his timing. I know this was a tough one for us. Be patient. Be prayerful. Be optimistic in a gospel-y sort of way, trusting that God is going to do what God is going to do. Now, so I, we talk about all this community stuff. We, let, let's, let's acknowledge the most important reality this morning. The thing that had to happen to make this spiritual community possible, and it's simply this, it's, be, it's because Jesus abhorred what is evil and he held fast to what is good. What do I mean by that? Because Jesus abhorred evil so much that he said, I am going to go to the cross and take evil upon me so that we can be freed from evil and sin permanently. I'm going to abhor evil by taking on evil. I'm going to abhor what is sinful by becoming the sin bearer, and I'm going to hold fast to what is good. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, whose joy? His joy? and your joy. He said, I'm, I'm going to abhor evil by taking on evil. I'm going to hold fast to what is good. I'm, 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 I am willingly laying down my life so that my people can have life. Because as we prepare to come to the, the table this morning, in a very real way, the supper is a reenactment of Romans 12, 9. Because what are we doing when we come to the table? We're saying, I, Lord, by your grace, I'm turning from sin. I'm abhorring sin. I'm, I'm abhorring the evil in my life. And I'm clinging to you. And I'm taking hold fast of what you took on for me. And so I'm going to ask you just to spend 
just a minute or so, asking God to prepare your hearts as we come to the table, that he would speak to you through this passage, that he would show you, man, this is an area I'm not abhorring evil. This is an area where I'm not clinging to what is good. God, forgive me. God, be gracious to me. And God, give me your grace. So take just a moment to do that silently to yourself. And as you do, I'm going to invite our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper.